0: Have you noticed in life how there are some things that you will experience that doesn't just change you, but it changes your entire family? What comes to mind as I say that? Maybe a really good restaurant. I'm really hungry, I think, this morning. <laughs> and you, you tell everyone you know about it. You tell your family. You take your family, and then they tell their friends and their family, and it just kind of spreads, right? Or, or, or maybe like a TV show or those kinds of, of things. Well, many of you know that uh, I was uh, born and bred into this shoe family, right? My dad sold shoes for 40 years. Uh, I, I got to sell shoes for about 10 years. And so I kind of was born into this idea of high-quality footwear, all right, and that's like kind of like a little cult, honestly, if we're being serious about it. I didn't realize it till I had some perspective later in life. But um I met my my wife in college and I had grown up with like the just the best shoes you could imagine. My dad would get them for free or at discounted rates, all that stuff, right? Um so I never really knew what it was like to actually spend like a lot of money on shoes, but then my wife comes in the picture, and I remember we were dating, and it was like within the first month I took her down to, down to Kalamazoo to the shoe store to see my dad, and we got her her first pair of nice shoes, and there was absolutely no going back. so now she has nice shoes, our kids have nice shoes, all that stuff, right? Uh, but also, uh, I would see this at the shoe store, one person would come in begrudgingly based on their doctor's orders. And due to the charms of the salesperson, they would end up in like a $200 pair of shoes. And then they would come back with their husband. And once you get the husband in a $200 pair of shoes, it's just game over. The whole family has been converted, and they've joined this nice shoe cult, okay? So... You can identify our family, uh, especially, we were all together the other day, and my parents, Meg, and I were all together, even my, my brother, too, who's in town, and every single one of us was pairing what's called, it's a pair of shoes called on shoes. It's like these running shoes. None of us, except my brother is a runner, but we all had on basically the same exact pairs of shoes. So anyway, there's these things that happen in our lives that affect not just us, but our entire family. And we're talking about that in a much more significant way than shoes as we look at our before and after today, the Philippian jailer. In this series, we've been looking at the transformative work of God in individuals' lives, who they were before, who they are after. So today, it's all about the Philippian jailer found in Acts chapter 16. Catching us up to speed on what's going on at this time in 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 the early church. It is growing, it is spreading. This is after Jesus, of course, and 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 now the Holy Spirit is doing a mighty work throughout his church, but we also see persecution on God's people is also growing. In the midst of all that, Paul is with Silas, and they're in Philippi. And Paul casts a demon out of a woman called Lydia, which you absolutely should read about. That has an entire before and after as well. It happens right before this in Acts 16, and he casts this demon out of this woman, Lydia. That's awesome, right? That's the good stuff. That's what this is all about. Oh, except Lydia happened to be a slave, and her owner's were taking complete advantage of her, longing for the demon to stay within her because they were using her as a fortune teller predicting the future. And now that the demon was gone, their means of wealth is also gone. And so they are furious. says a lot about them, doesn't it? So they capture Paul and Silas. They drag them in front of the authorities. It's the magistrates there at Philippi. And they say to them, these Jewish men are throwing our city into an uproar. How dare you cast that demon out of that woman? And now we pick up from verse 22. We're going to, from chapter 16 of Acts. We're going to stop a few times along the way. But Acts 16, starting at verse 22. Hear now the true word of the Lord. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So everything about this imprisonment, is completely unjust, all right? The process of stripping and beating and imprisoning Paul and Silas, completely unjust. First off, they're, they're beaten, they're flogged, which is very serious. But, and this is when they're stripped, so it's even more severe. And it's not just flogged, it says severely flogged. That means shredding and bruising and inflammation of your entire back. Can't fathom the pain. They don't have an actual hearing or trial. They have no chance to defend themselves or even to speak of what they did. And then they have this jailer, our jailer, who we're focusing on today. He enters the scene and he has the command from the magistrates, guard them carefully. Now the jailer takes his job very seriously. He throws them in the inner cell. The inner cell was the most secure part of the prison, and it was very dark and gloomy, okay? It's kind of like, uh, almost like solitary confinement in a way, right? It's You're in the box. You're dark. It's dark. You can't see anything else, and it's the most secure place. Not only that, but they're also put in stocks. Now, stocks were reserved for people, either criminals of low status or for criminals that were considered highly dangerous. Paul and Silas would be neither, and yet that's where they put them. And stocks were not just a mean of further security, it was, but it was also meant for punishment, humiliation, and torture. Now if you first read stocks and you picture like, again, the Wild West, right? Like the, the head and the hands, like you can pose for a picture at Cedar Point, stocks thing. It wasn't that way, this way anyway. Uh, You would sit on the ground, and they would put your ankles in stocks between two pieces of wood, thick pieces of wood, chained in that way, and they had different holes at different uh, lengths apart from each other to increase the discomfort and the pain. Now, when you have young kids, you realize how hard it is to sit on the ground again, okay? And to sit on the ground for any length of time is very uncomfortable. It's hard to find comfort when your feet are strapped in place, in a secure place, sometimes even your hands strapped in place. It's highly uncomfortable. It's very painful. And that's how Paul and Silas were treated. In fact, Paul even writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. He says, we were shamefully treated at Philippi. And I'd say that is definitely an accurate Statement and imagine your own self. This is about as bad as a situation as you can be in. How would you respond if you were Paul and Silas? The other night, I woke up with a Charlie horse in my calf, and that like did me in. Man, have you guys had this? A Charlie horse, right? That was excruciating, but that is not even an ounce of what they were dealing with. For Paul and Silas, in the misery, in the darkness of the inner chamber, this is what's fascinating. For them, though it was as miserable as it seems on the outside, it was less like solitary confinement. And the darkness of that place was more like the Holy of Holies, for in that place was also the presence of God. And look at how they respond. In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Wow. The saving power of God. Unfortunately physical display as the earth shakes, the doors open, the chains break free. That's what God does. But it also raises some questions. And my first is this, why did the other prisoners stay? Think about that. We don't know why they're in prison, but there's other prisoners in their midst. And the text tells us they remain. Now, this happened about midnight, it says, several hours after the sun had set. It was common at that time for all the prisoners to be ushered into that inner chamber and locked in that place as a secure means of keeping them throughout the night. It was extra security. You know it was very cramped in there. It's pitch black and poor ventilation. We know it's pitch black because later the prison guard commands for them to bring some torches because it was so dark, and yet the jailer, he's asleep. You only sleep if you are certain that those prisoners are secure. Everything else shows us this jailer is serious about his job, and so he sleeps because he believes it would take an act of God for these prisoners to be freed. (laughs) So it does, and in that space, Paul and Silas are singing, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but I'm still captured by these prisoners that stay. And the text says the prisoners were listening. It doesn't say we're trying to ignore them. It didn't say they're trying to get them to quiet down and yelling at them, mad that they're singing. They would say that. Listen, you, can't, you can't listen while yelling at the same time. They were listening to them as they sit there And stocks, Paul and Silas, bloodied and bruised backs, singing praises to God. Reminds me of what Psalm 119 says, 61 through 62. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. They can't sleep, so they worship God and the earth shakes, chains break free, and all the prisoners stay. Why? Maybe there wasn't enough time for them to get away before the, 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 the jailer woke up and called for lights and all of that, but we honestly don't know how much time has passed. Earthquakes were actually relatively common in that area, maybe not one on this magnitude, and certainly not chains breaking. Or maybe Paul asked them to remain, but there's no record, record of that here in, in Acts. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is highly detailed. He was a physician by trade, so you would think he would leave that detail in if Paul asked them to stay. We don't exactly know why they stayed, but I think there's something to be said that they were captivated by Paul and Silas worshiping, as well as what they were singing about. Plus, the mighty power displayed that seemed to prove the subject of their songs true. Much like Jesus and the thief last week, Paul and Silas, in their distress, act in such a way that the prisoners can't look away. And they take notice. What is going on with these two? How can they sing? How? How? And a takeaway for us is that people, such as these prisoners, are always listening and watching. They're always listening and watching. And if you follow Christ, then how we live speaks loudly to others. How we act, what we say, what we do, what we don't do, especially in the face of injustice and when we've been mistreated or others have been mistreated. See, it's one thing for our faith to be on display when we are here at church, right? And it's such another when we are in the darkness and when we are in distress and when we have been wronged, when we have been beaten and bloodied and bruised. How do we act? They watch Paul and Silas who turn praising God in the midst of their pain and imprisonment. And so the prisoners stay. And what were they singing? Why were Paul and Silas singing? Well, their imprisonment, their pain, their struggle, their toil that they were actively experiencing right then and there in Philippi, all came because God had transformed a life in Lydia. That demon was cast out of her, who was she was shackled by that demon, and he set her free through Paul. And so they sit there and they sing because it's all worth it for one soul and one life. They sing because also Paul, he's no longer Saul. He has experienced himself the transforming love of Christ, and he has been made new. Because Silas, he was deemed worthy to suffer for Christ. Put yourselves in that place for a second. It says in Acts 5:41 that after they had been beaten and all the things, they rejoiced that they had suffered and deemed worthy enough to suffer for Christ who suffered completely for them. That will turn your head on, in a weird way. First Peter even says in, in chapter 4, verse 13, Rejoice when you share in Christ's suffering. Hey, Jesus did this for me, and now I do this for him. Because they sing, because their love of God is greater than the magistrate's hatred for them. And because they know God is still at work doing what God does. The reason for singing could never be taken away by earthly pains. You've heard it said a million times, but don't lose the truth of it despite the repetition of it. They did not let their circumstances dictate their joy. And neither should we. What do we do when things go south? I got that Charlie Hurst. I wasn't ready to sing. <laughs> I was ready to say some other things. What do we do when things go south? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever whistled while you're sad? No. You whistle while you work, right? You whistle because you're happy. Have you ever been around someone who's whistling when you're really sad and you're really angry? It makes you furious, doesn't it? Sorry, Dad, all those mornings you whistled and sang as I'm waking up and you're like emptying the dishwasher just happy as can be. What in the world? Well, who are you? <laughs> and now I do the same thing. <laughs> well, not the getting up early and dishes things. You rock, Meg. But still, <laughs> the same goes for singing. Is it your first inclination to sing when you're sad? Probably not. Probably not. Is it your first inclination to rejoice when when you're in true distress? Probably not. You kind of sit in that space, right? You sing. When we sing, why do we often sing? We sing because we're happy. We sing because we have joy. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. There you go. Mm. They sing for though they are chained, they are free. Indeed, they are more free right here and now in stocks, in chains, beaten, bloodied, bruised, in the darkness than the jailer who stands watch over them. And the prisoners get a glimpse of it. And so when their chains are removed, it represents the freedom of Christ that they have witnessed in Paul and Silas and they are longing for for themselves. And the doors are wide open And they remain. Paul and Silas singing while chained not just shows us we have a joy that surpasses all, all circumstance, but living for Jesus means we have the opportunity to live differently. We go at a different speed because we have the love of Jesus propelling our steps. We have the opportunity for people to see Christ in us as we live as a living testimony throughout our days. Where it just is a little bit different, uh, maybe not necessarily weird, but definitely peculiar to those who do not yet know Jesus. And they see something in us that causes them to stop and say, That door's open, but I need to sit and see what's going on here for a minute longer. Are we living our lives as a living testimony? Can people tell looking at us, witnessing us, observing us, hearing us, that there's an inner love, an inner joy, an inner peace at our foundation simply by how we live? The jailer did not yet have such a foundation. Because he took, we know he took his job seriously, but he wakes up and he thinks the worst possible thing to happen had happened. The one thing he was charged to do, to guard them carefully, he believed he had failed at. That all the prisoners were gone. So he becomes overcome with despair and fear. Because his foundation was that. It wasn't Christ. It was customary at that time now, you see, for a jailer that if they allowed a prisoner to escape, he would have to then serve the punishment reserved for that prisoner's crimes. Imagine if the entire prisoner of the prisons was emptied. He was responsible then and have to pay the penalty of all of that. Echoes of Jesus in there too, don't miss that. But that is where he was, and he found himself in the pit of despair. In the pit of despair. We later learn this man has a family. He has, we are aware that he has a steady job. He even has a place of authority in that job, for later he commands them to grab the torches for him. He has been providing for his family. Every single thing seemed to be going quite well from what we can gather, from what the text tells us. But if all the prisoners have escaped, then all of that means nothing. And what happens is he falls immediately into the pit of despair. But even when life looks like it's going quite well, without Christ, it will lead to despair. It will. Either here on this side of eternity or forevermore afterward, it will lead to despair. And he's so overcome with despair. He is in that pit, the best possible path forward. He sees is death. He already knew he was as good as dead. And so the only way forward he sees is to end it all. Because how else can he escape this? Oh, but Jesus is the one who rescues us from that pit. And God makes a way. And moments before his death, his life is changed forever. As Paul calls out, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The last thing that jailer ever expected to hear was the very good news that we're all here. The entire crew of prisoners, along with Paul and Silas, remain. We know Paul and Silas remain, and they risked their life for the chance of saving, God saving, one man's soul. And so picking up from 29, the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house. He set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Praise God for the reading of his true word. This is what's fascinating. All the prisoners are still there. This man could very easily have just locked them all back up. No prisoners escaped. All is well. It's a close call, but I can go back to the stability that I knew. He'd keep his job. He would keep his life, except he came so close to the end this man has been deeply changed. He rushes in. He rushes in. And he falls trembling before them. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And he learns the best news of all. You don't have to do anything. In fact, you can't do anything See, the pathway to heaven, the thing you're longing for, it demands perfection. In God's home, there is no sin, and none of us can be perfect. We're all hopelessly lost to our own despair outside of Jesus, Jesus who alone is perfect and who became our sin. He's the one who buried it in the ground when he claimed it is finished. It is done. So what do you have to do? You can't do anything to earn your salvation. Instead, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's already been done. Simply believe. And in that prison, the guard experienced the power of God, the grace of God, and the shackle-breaking freedom of God he first saw it in the ground shaking. He then experienced the grace with all of them being there. And then he saw it most fully in the word of God and the cleansing waters of baptism. God's power and grace comes in his distress and brings him to believe just as he sets the prison guard free. And the man's fear of the people, remember his fear of the magistrates, the thing that why he was going to kill himself because of his fear of the magistrates, it turns into the fear of the Lord, having holy reverence for God Almighty, his power and his saving grace in his life. And his desire for Jesus is now greater than his fear of the magistrates. And it is resembled in the fact that he first brings his whole family to them. That's a crazy thing. And they all hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And upon hearing that gospel, they all believe. And his actions then reveal his heart change. Because what does he do? But he takes on the role of our servant, Savior Christ, and he washes their wounds. He washes their back. He cleanses them. That is a close, intimate thing. By the way, have you ever talked to a prison guard? They don't have a whole lot of love for those they guard. Okay? Okay? And look at the journey this man went on. He washes their wounds, and each one of his family are baptized. We don't know where they got the water for this. Some scholars believe they went out into the public uh, space where there's like a fountain and all that. It's possible. Some believe they went to his home. Some believe he might have been living above the prison in his home. We don't know exactly. Those are all possible and all radically amazing because he no longer feared what would happen if the magistrates heard he did this. He did what he believed was right to care for these people. And he invites them into his home. He feeds them. It's clear he's been changed. It is clear he's been changed as only God can change a person. He answers now to a higher authority and that authority, God, demands a response. And so the jailer and his whole family are filled with joy as they rejoice because they believe in God. To rejoice is to have the joy of our salvation pour out. They rejoice because it is their salvation, the joy of their salvation pouring out. Paul and Silas were rejoicing because it was the joy of their salvation pouring out. We gather together and we sing praises to God as our act of our salvation, the joy of our salvation pouring out. So how, between Sundays, is the joy of your salvation pouring out so that others might catch it and experience it and receive it? That's what it is to be a living testimony. That's what it is to live our lives in a way that are different. Our testimony is not just our words, but also our way through this life. Paul and Silas were simply being faithful to what God called them to. And God went to work, and the jailer and his entire family found Jesus Christ. See, your faithfulness will bless others. In fact, your greatest gift to your family, to your coworkers, to all those you, in your heart you long to speak Jesus to, your greatest gift to them is living wholly and completely for Jesus. As you put your faith in God, he takes that faith and he multiplies it. First here, we see the prison doors are open. We see the prisoners are set free. And then the jailer is saved. And not just the jailer, but his whole family, an entire community of faith, simply because Paul and Silas were faithful in the midst of their suffering. And what else do we know as we wrap this up? Lydia, the one to read about earlier in this chapter, She's the first recorded convert in Philippi. The next is the jailer and his household and presumably all the other prisoners. And what do we see? But they are the very beginning of the church in Philippi. The church that you can read a letter that Paul wrote to in his letter to the Philippians, called Philippians. And it shows that Paul had a substantial relationship with them throughout the rest of his life. In fact, within that, he writes to them when he's again imprisoned, and he writes, rejoice in your suffering. He writes, be joyful in all your circumstances. And imagine the jailer being on the receiving end of that reminder from his friend, Paul. Powerful. The loving grace of God pours out to all who call upon him to bring them into everlasting life. So how are you feeling called to respond today? Maybe it's to rejoice in your own suffering. You're in a suffering season, and yet you need to choose and find with God's help and God's people to remember your joy that is your foundation. Or maybe it's to refocus your faithfulness to the one who has always been faithful. Or maybe, like the prisoner, it is to stay And surround yourself with God's people and His good news. Maybe it's simply to believe for the first time or to believe again that God makes a way. When you are bloodied, when you're bruised, God makes a way. In the face of injustice, God makes a way. When you are surrounded by darkness, God makes a way. When you are beaten down and distressed, God makes a way. When you think your life is over, God makes a way. You think your life is over, God makes a way. He went to the grave and he rose victorious, bringing all of us from death to life. He makes a way. You have no idea what God is cooking up behind the scenes in your life right now. But I guarantee And one way or another, God will make a way. See, this Philippian man, he started his shift and imprisoned prison guard. And he ended it a free and saved child of the one true king. So may all of us be a living testimony, trusting that God is at work even now in our lives and the lives of all we encounter as he continues to pave the way from death to life. Because our God always makes a way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your saving power and grace and your might as we read about this most amazing account in the book of Acts. But God, we know that's not a one-time event. That's simply what you do. And sometimes you cause the earth to tremble. Sometimes you cause the whisper of a friend. But no matter how you cause it, you are always at work drawing your people ever closer to you. If only our hearts are willing. So Lord, we here right now lay ourselves before you again. We offer ourselves to you completely again, asking you to make a way in our lives, to have your way in our lives. For you are the way to life. You are the reason we live. You are the reason we exist. And you have work for us to accomplish in Jesus' name. So soften our hearts, God. Empower us through your Holy Spirit to do what you have called us to do as you draw us and others ever closer to you as we live trusting that you are at work even now. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. We pray this all in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Stand, let's sing.